We're going to talk today about um, the sovereignty of God. Uh, and maybe a, a better term than sovereignty is providence. Uh, definitely there's overlap there, but the word providence is a bit broader. Um, the providence of God means, <clears throat> and this is my definition, that God accomplishes all of his will. In other words, everything that happens is under the control and plan of God. Um, this is a controversial doctrine in the church. Uh, and to be honest, the more I read Scripture, the less controversial it seems to me. Um, it just seems very clear that God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything, meaning that nothing happens that he doesn't know about ahead of time and choose to have, to have happen. Therefore, it's all under his control. A few scriptures on this. Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Uh, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. So whatever he pleases, that's what he does. God has zero unfulfilled desires. Whatever he wants to do, whatever he wills to do, it is as good as done. Isaiah 14, verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God's plans always happen just as he had planned them to. Nobody can mess that up. Nothing outside of God can interfere with his purposes. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not, a, uh, not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. Uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him, who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So God does what he wills. Uh, nothing in heaven and no one on earth can interfere with the purpose and will of God. Uh, there are, I gave here 10 categories. There's no way at this point we're going to get through all of these, but 10 categories of God's sovereignty. Number one, God is sovereign over the universe, and these are going to kind of narrow in their scope as we go. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Number two, God is sovereign over the physical world. If you have a Bible, uh, just turn to Psalm 104. I didn't type all of these uh, verses on the screen. We're going to read most of this chapter, Psalm 104, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1, where it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the, the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. 
You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. So you see throughout those first uh, 32 verses, uh, God's sovereignty over everything in the physical universe, from the mountains to the seas to all the animals. We'll talk about some of that later, but God controls everything in nature. Another text like that is Job 38. We're not going to read that for sake of time, where God talks about his control of everything in nature. And this is found, of course, all throughout the Bible. This is probably the one area of sovereignty that pretty much everybody agrees with. There's no dispute um, that God has control over weather. He has control over, you know, obviously, everything in nature. Number three, God is sovereign over animals. Uh, Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. We could add to this the stories like the lions uh, that Daniel was in the den with and God kept them from hurting Daniel. Uh, the donkey that God caused to talk to Balaam. The fish that God brought to Peter's net when he cast his net on the other side of the boat, which you know makes no sense. Why would the fish come over there? But, well, God told them to. And so on and on we could go with examples of how uh, God is in control of the animals. Number four, God is sovereign over the affairs of nations. Psalm 22, verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Think of Isaiah 10. Uh, I didn't write this one down either, but where God uses a, a foreign nation, Assyria, to judge Israel. 
And the king of Assyria attacked Israel for his own reasons. It says in Isaiah 10, he did so for the pride of his heart. Uh, he had his own motivations for attacking Israel. And yet, God says that he was unwittingly the rod of God's anger against Israel. He was using a foreign nation to judge Israel. Another example of this type of sovereignty over nations is how uh, God used Cyrus, king of Persia. We talked about that several weeks ago. Um, how God stirred the heart of Cyrus to let the people go back to, to Jerusalem, let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. He funded the temple being rebuilt, all of that. And in Isaiah 45, throughout the text, God says, you didn't know me, and yet I'm the one, you're my servant. You're doing exactly what I, I have caused you to do. And so uh, God is sovereign over the affairs of nations. Number five, God is sovereign over human successes and failures. Meaning we don't succeed or fail in life at anything apart from God. Psalm 75 verse 4, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Job 5, verse 12, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. You could add to this text like, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain, that build it. With all of these points um, and everything that we're going to see, all the points I've covered already, all the points that I'm going to cover, I could have added dozens of more verses under each one of them. Because there is so much specificity in Scripture about God's control over absolutely everything. Uh, number six, God is sovereign over human actions. And here's where we get uncomfortable, because we want to think that we are autonomous agents doing as we please, and God can't control us. Uh, we're okay with God controlling the weather and the animals and nations, maybe, but when it comes to us... We have a hard time accepting that God is in control of what we think we're in control of, mainly our own actions. Here are a couple of texts on this. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Judges 14, verse 2. This is uh, Samson. Samson came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go and uh, to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now all of that seems like this is Samson acting. Uh, he is desiring this woman who is not a part of Israel. He's wanting to marry her. Verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And if you read the rest of the story of Samson, God uses this relationship to bring down the Philistines. You know the story where Samson is between the pillars and he strikes and the whole place just collapses. All of that was predicated upon the fact that Samson wanted this woman as his wife and demanded her from his parents. And they didn't know that this was God working. It wasn't just Samson acting autonomously. God was behind this. Genesis 50, verse 20. 
Uh, the story of Joseph, one of the classic examples of this, right? The brothers sell Joseph into slavery instead of killing him because the Midianite chariot just happened to be going by. Uh, and so they decide to sell him into slavery. God go, uh, Joseph goes to slavery. Uh, he's sold to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife lies about him. He ends up in jail at the same time as uh, the butler and baker of Pharaoh. All of that happens. Why? Well, in the end, we find out. It was to provide food and basically to preserve Israel uh, because the sons of Jacob would have all starved to death during that famine if Joseph wasn't in his position in Egypt. And so Genesis 50, verse 20, uh, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me when you sold me into slavery. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Uh, and of course, the ultimate example, you know, maybe the most climactic example of God's sovereignty over human actions is the crucifixion of Christ. Obviously, we all understand Jesus dying on the cross was God's plan from the beginning. Uh, and yet, think of all of the human agents that had to make decisions in order to bring that to pass. You know, Pilate had to make the decision to wash his hands and give in to the people, even though he didn't think they were making the right call. Uh, you know, Judas had to make the decision to betray Jesus for 20 pieces of silver. All of those things took place in order to bring about the crucifixion of Christ. Acts 4, verse 27, For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they were not acting as free autonomous agents. Yes, they were choosing to do what they did. They had reasons for their choices. It's not as though... You know, they were just robots and they didn't actually want to do what they did. No, they did. But God was behind that. God was over the actions of Judas, of Herod, of Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles referring to the Romans, the Sanhedrin is the last part, the peoples of Israel. And so all of those people that were involved in the crucifixion of Christ were acting uh, on the behest of God, even though they did not realize it at the time. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, In the mystery of divine providence, God works his will even through our intentional decisions. When Joseph said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, he meant that although his brothers had intended something evil, the good providence of God stood above that. And God was working through their wickedness for the good of the people. We see the same thing in the New Testament with Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus for evil, but God was using the sin of Judas to bring about our salvation. That is the great comfort of the doctrine of providence, that God stands over all things and works them together for the good of his people, Romans 8.28. And he is the ultimate source of our comfort. Number seven, God is sovereign over human thoughts. So the last one, God was sovereign over human actions. Now God is sovereign over human thoughts, meaning God can cause you to think something. He is in control of our minds. He can bend a person's will. 1 Samuel 10, verse 26, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So God bent their wills to go with Saul. Exodus 4, verse 21, a classic example. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Why did Pharaoh refused to let the people go. Yes, he made the decision. He didn't want the people to go. But God says, before it even took place, he's going to do that because I'm going to harden his heart. 
And so there are two wills at, at work here. Uh, Pharaoh is just angry at Israel and, and wants, you know, wants their slave labor and so forth. God wants to display his power through the plagues, as he eventually does. So he wants to magnify himself through the situation. And so God causes Pharaoh's heart to become hard. Proverbs 21, verse 1. If you want just a general statement, this is one of the things about sovereignty is you have general statements and then you have specific examples. So there's just no way around this. You know, you've got the specific cases and then you've got the general principles that uh, cover all of it. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And most people think that's referring to uh, the way that the Jews would irrigate their fields by cutting channels through to you know, move the water wherever they need more. Um, and God says, the king's heart is like that. I can move it however I want to. Uh, Revelation 17, verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts. This is referring to the people that God's caused to uh, hate. Well, I, I don't want to get into all of the confusion of, uh, of Revelation 17, what all that's symbolizing. But God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So God put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose. Say, so God is sovereign over human thoughts. Number eight, God is sovereign over Satan and the demons. Uh, Job is the clearest example of this, right? Satan has to get God's permission to afflict Job, and even when he gets God's permission, God sets the parameters for what jo uh, Satan's allowed to do, what he's not allowed to do. First uh, Corinthians 10, verse 13, I brought this up before, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, now what can that possibly mean unless God is sovereign over the temptations that come into our life? He vetoes those that are beyond our ability. He will not allow those. So that means, just like with Job, Satan has intentions and he wants to do things, and God says, no, you can't go that far. You can't cross that line. And so God sets the parameters of what Satan and the demons are allowed to do. Um, this is it's a difficult thing to get our minds around, but God utilizes Satan and the demons to accomplish his purposes. And we see a few examples uh, of that, that are just so interesting. First Kings 22, verse 19. Uh, Micaiah, a prophet of God, said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So, so God is talking here to the angels of heaven. And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, to this demon, by what means? He said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, this is God, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, the Lord has declared disaster for you. So God utilizes the lying spirits to lie to these false prophets to convince Ahab to go into this battle where he's going to die. All of that was God's working through the demonic realm to accomplish his purpose. 1 Samuel 16, 14, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, 
and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Uh, Jesus' control over demons, of course, has been seen many times uh, throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke. You remember the maniac of Gadara, uh, where God or Jesus commands the, the demo, demonic spirits inside of the man to go enter these pigs, and they jump off a cliff. All of that is showing Jesus is king over the demons. It's not like you have uh, you know, Jesus and Satan and their equals battling it out. No, no. Satan and his forces are underneath the control and sovereignty of God. Um, and so when it comes to Satan and the demons, I like to think of them as like a dog on a leash. Okay, they, they're evil, they hate God, but God uses them for his purposes. He can, but, but, but there's always parameters there. They're not free to just act as they will. Um, there's more here. I think this is probably the best place to stop because I had a video after this and it's like 13 minutes long, so that would put us over. Uh, are there any questions about anything we've said so far. We're going to get into more specifics next week. We'll have to finish this then. Catherine. I don't know that we can say he would have done that anyways. Meaning, Pharaoh was not doing what he did um, in obedience to God. He was doing what he did for his own motivations. Okay, so he has agency because just like, um, maybe go to Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10 is a similar case, and, and God explains that issue of agency. Now, at the end of the day, uh, you're not going to get that question answered very satisfactorily. I have to just tell you that up front. Uh, how human responsibility works with God's sovereignty is something that's been debated for 2,000 years. So I don't expect that I'm going to give you the be-all, end-all answer to that. But the Bible very clearly teaches that God is sovereign, that he works his purposes through human beings, and at the same time, those human beings are responsible for their actions. Both, this is compatibilism, both of these are true. And however that tension works, again, I don't have all the answers and neither do you. Nobody does. But we believe, you know, Scripture is pretty clear on this. Isaiah 10, oh, let's see, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. So again, Assyria was attacking Israel and, and they were doing God's bidding because God wanted to judge Israel. So he was using them sort of like a, uh, you know, a paddle to, to discipline Israel. Against a godless nation, verse 6, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So God is sending them to do this, verse 7. But he, Assyria, specifically the king of Assyria, which we'll get to in a minute, he does not so intend and his heart does not so think. So he's not thinking, I'm going to go attack Israel because God wants me to. No, he's, he's not concerned with doing God's will, the rest of the verse, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like uh, Karshemesh? Is not Hamath like uh, Arpad? And is not Samaria like Damascus? And, 
As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So that's what's going on in the mind of the king of Assyria. I, I've destroyed all these other nations. Uh, Israel, his, what is Israel's God? I, I've destroyed other nations with their gods, and so I'm going to wipe these guys out too. Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work through Assyria, attacking Israel, when he's finished his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, then the Lord, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. This is again the king of Assyria. By my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest uh, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs uh, that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Okay, so that's, again, the arrogance of the king of Assyria. He is doing this for his own reasons. And God says, I'm using you to accomplish my purposes. I sent you to do this, he says, but I'm also going to punish you because it was not your intention to do my will. It was your intention to attack Israel because of the arrogance of your heart. Verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. And so he's just pointing out the ridiculousness of the king of Assyria bragging about something where God is the one using him to do this. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day the glory of his forest, the fruitful and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnants of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Um, there's more later, but that, that's the main point that I wanted to bring out. You see, and again, I don't have all of the answers of how this works, but the king of Assyria was doing what God had sent him to do. God put it in his heart to do this. God was using him to punish Israel. At the same time, the king of Assyria is a, has agency. He is responsible for his actions, and he's going to be judged, not because he did God's will, but because he did it for the wrong intentions. It was not his intention to do God's will, even though he was doing it. And the same thing is true of Pharaoh. Um, one of the things that we need to distinguish here, and we're running out of time, is two different senses of God's will so when you hear me say, the king of Assyria did God's will, that doesn't mean he did a good thing, like a good job king of Assyria. No, he was doing a wicked thing, and it was God's will. Just like Judas was doing a wicked thing, selling Jesus right to be crucified, and obviously that was God's will in the sense that it was his plan, that it would take place. So God does will, in a sense, some sin to happen. right? God does, it is a part of his plan that Pontius Pilate would say, go ahead and kill Jesus. Was it right for Pilate to do that? No. Will he be judged for that? Yes. And he was also doing God's plan. So that's, that's as far as I can, I can't answer it better than that. That's as far as we can go, is to say, you know, beyond this, as Calvin says, we're looking into the blinding light of God's mind, and that's something that's dangerous for all of us. But we have to hold two truths. God is sovereign. He works 
through humans' wills and actions what, what he ultimately plans. And at the same time, human beings are responsible for their actions. And how all of that works out, uh, you, can, you can try to tell me after because we're out of time. Uh, but, but I don't have all the answers for that.